to the Catholic Church and the Jewish people in contemporary times, where this class is looking at the complex and evolving relationship between Jews and Catholics in modern times, beginning with a statement issued by the Second Vatican Council in 1965, which retracted the church's longstanding claim that Jews are guilty of deicide or God murder. Today's session is focusing on in the wake of Nostra Tate. Um, we have the pleasure of learning with Dr. Dr. Simkovich, who has taught at Drisha before, who has published on Second Temple Judaism and is, and is a teacher at Catholic Theological Union. And we're really glad to have her today. Um, if you are joining us on Zoom, I'm going to send out a round of panel invitations. I, start, I recommend accepting them. And if you're and feel free to ask questions in chat, whether you're on Zoom or on Facebook Live. And with that, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. All right, hello everybody. Good to see some of you. Thank you uh, to those of you who can turn on your screens, but um, all of you are equally greeted. And I know some of you are joining us via Facebook. So we only have an hour and I'm going to dive right in. Last week, we talked about the circumstances which led to the extraordinary transformation of the Catholic Church known as Nostra Aetate, which was put together in 1965 after years of controversy and debate and multiple drafts. And today we're going to talk about how the Catholic Church has struggled to interpret um, and apply the teachings, whatever they might be, of Nostra Aetate. And if you have had time to order and take a look at this outstanding book by my friend Karma Ben Yochanan, uh, I, I highly recommend it. I mentioned it last week. It's also on a syllabus, which I'm happy to send out to you if you send me an email requesting it. Um, and one of the things that Ben Yochanan does so well is she's not so interested in the circumstances surrounding the production of Nostra Aetate, but she is very interested in the ambiguities um, and the various internal conflicts that took place within the Catholic Church in the wake of Nostra Aetate, and she sets them up very nicely along the Jewish side um, and the debates within the Jewish, particularly the Orthodox community. Um, and so this week and next week, we're going to, I'm not like reading to you Ben Yochanan, but Ben Yochanan is a great supplement to this class. Um, so today we're going to look at the Catholic interpretation of Nostra Aetate, and next week we'll look at the Jewish side. Um, but I do want to build on one uh, key argument that Ben Yochanan makes, which I think is really, really helpful to understanding um, how difficult it was for the church to discern what Nostra Aetate was saying and how to implement it. And that is that every pope has his own personality, his own style, um, and his own relationship that he cultivates almost from scratch with the Jewish community. Um, two popes that she focused on in particular are uh, the very, very famous Pope uh, John, uh, John Paul II and uh, Pope Benedict, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, uh, who's still alive today. And uh, <clears throat> by the way, if you've never seen the movie The Two Popes on Netflix, it is extraordinary. It is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Um, and I wanted to actually show you a clip today but uh, the computer I'm using is not connected to Netflix and I, I actually don't know my password. So I don't know if I'll be able to show you a little clip, but it's just absolutely phenomenal. Um, I might be able to pull that up if you can give me the timestamps. Yeah, so I would start around minute 17 when they enter the garden and then end at around minute 24. But this would be, it, for fun, it would be at the end of class. I don't know if we would have time, so we would might we maybe have to go over the hour to look at it. That's where I would land. Um, if we have some time or if people are willing to stay a little bit late. So yeah, minute 17 is where they enter the garden and the scene is about seven minutes long. It's one of the mm -hmm. best scenes I've ever seen. I mean, it's really blows me away. Um, okay, so today, once again, I'm going to share a PowerPoint and this PowerPoint does what all PowerPoints should never do, which is include lots and lots of text. So consider this more like a source sheet. I did my best to make it interesting, but. One of the things you're going to see is that there's a massive disparity between doctrine and public gesture. And that's a, a distinction that Karma Ben-Yochanan makes very well. She says, the legacy of John Paul II is so positive when it comes to the Jewish community and, and deservedly so, but his focus was on public gesture because he understood the significance, the meaning, the power of going to the people standing among them and giving them a, a, a powerful speech. Now, I disagree with Ben Yochanan a little bit uh, in terms of the binary that she makes between public gestures and doctrine. I don't think that the 
distinction needs to be that sort of binary because of course public speeches so often end up impacting doctrine. But the important point that she does make, which I think is absolutely correct, is that John Paul II, who is so credited for implementing the teachings of Nostratate, taking them seriously, reconciling with the Jewish a community, he does it all in public. He doesn't change the doctrine. And so in many ways, he's just as conservative as Ratzinger. You might argue, as Ben Yochanan does, that all those public gestures, this is a little cynical, but all the public gestures are a way of sort of protecting uh, the tradition, the doctrine. Um, and, and so rather than producing these authoritative statements, um, he goes out to the people and he gives these remarkable speeches, um, Ratzinger is much more consistent. He's, there's less of a gap between his public persona and his writings. He's a very sophisticated theologian. Um, he's a very difficult thinker. Um, and so we're going to today look at their legacies and argue maybe they're not so far apart. Uh, at the same time, the public gestures initiated by uh, John Paul II were very, very powerful um, and significant, meaningful, all of that. So let's begin with my Terrible PowerPoint, here it is. I guess I should figure out once again how to make it so you can't see my slides. Let's see. Oh my, I think I make the same mistake every time. All right, so you should be able to see this, correct? Okay, so this is just, again, there's Cardinal Bea, one of the most prominent cardinals involved in the production of Nostratate, a great friend of the Jewish people, uh, of uh, worked in particular with Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, who provided a lot of feedback on the early drafts of Nostratate. And we looked at this text before, so I don't wanna spend so much time on it. I wanna point you again, there's Heschel with Bea, this is an incredible picture, I think. Um, but I want to point you towards what I think is maybe the most significant of uh, the paragraph on the Jews, paragraph four of Nostratate, where uh, the document says that the church cannot forget that she draws sustenance from the root of that well-cultivated olive tree. I don't know why it has to be an olive tree, except maybe it's a gesture towards the land of Israel, towards the connection with, I, with Israel, I don't know, onto which have been grafted the wild shoots, the Gentiles. If I highlight Oh no, see, I did that last time too. That's the advantage of a Word document is that I can highlight and you can see me highlighting it. That's okay. All right, and here we have Pope John Paul VI. Um, and um, again, some important um, underlined uh, material over here. Jerusalem, of course, did not recognize the time of her visitation from the Messiah, Jesus. But nevertheless, God holds the Jews most dear for the sake of their fathers. And I talked about last time how most dear, I think, is intentionally ambiguous. It's evocative. It's an emotion. It's not a technical status. There's a reason for that. It does not say God holds the Jews to be the bearers of a legitimate and ongoing covenant. It says most dear. What that means is anybody's guess. Perhaps the writers did not even uh, want to take a stand on the question of the status of the Jews. I don't think I mentioned this last class, but there is an approach in Catholic theology known as dual covenant theology, which argues that both the church and the Jewish people have a legitimate and parallel uh, covenant. This is a very controversial position that is rejected by, by the vast majority of Catholic theologians, even those theologians who argue for the uh, fraternity of um, of Jews and Christians and argue for, uh, you know, some kind of uh, salvation outside the church for Jews. At the same time, to go so far as to argue for dual covenant uh, theology is really considered beyond sort of the Overton window of acceptability. Uh, my colleague, uh, John Polakowski, who is very involved in uh, the production of Nostratate and involved uh, in Jewish-Christian relations for the past 50 years, has written and advocated for the possibility of dual covenant theology, but it remains very controversial. And I don't think that that is what this text is doing here. I don't think that it's going that far. Um, okay, so this is Nostratate. We looked at it last week. All right, so there's just so much text. All right, uh, anyway, so I wanna point you to a series of documents um, I'm always unsure where to put my own square because when I put it on the side, then it looks like I'm not looking at you, but I want you to know that I'm looking at you. Okay, and then when I put, oh, sorry. 
All right, it's fine. Okay. Um, and so there's a series of documents uh, in the 70s and 80s, the uh, guidelines for interpreting Nostra Aetate um, in uh, the mid 1970s. And then we're going to see uh, notes on how to implement Nostra Aetate in 1984. And what I want to show you here is that there's a big disparity between written text. This is not doctrine, but it's a church document. So there's a big disparity between written text and what, especially Pope John the six will do, but then especially uh, John Paul II, less so Ratzinger, less so Pope Francis. We're not really gonna talk about Francis, although if you have questions about him, I'd be glad to discuss it in the Q and A. Um, but, but doctrine and written text is always more conservative than what one can do at a public event. Uh, and that's the same, I think, in the Jewish community as well. Uh, here, what I think is really remarkable about the guidelines, which were just produced less than 10 years after Nostratate, is that I see echoes of Jules Isaac in this document. Remember Jules Isaac, our friend who produced the 18 points of Silasburg? No, he, he, he wrote Jesus and uh, Israel. He had 18 points of commonalities um, between Jews and Christians, and then that was sort of the inspiration for the Seelisberg uh, conference. Again, if you want me to send you the PowerPoint with all these sources after class, I'd be glad to. Um, but so we have these lists being produced from Jews who are committed to Jewish-Christian dialogue about <clears throat> what Christians should focus on when they're teaching about Jews in Catholic-Christian settings. So if you look at this document, it's actually quite a nice document. Uh, it begins, this is very, um, this is very abridged. I don't have the whole thing here. Uh, you can easily find it online and the official version is on the Vatican website in various languages. Um, Lest the witness of Catholics to Jesus give offense to Jews, they must take care to live and spread their Christian faith while maintaining the strictest respect for religious liberty. In other words, you cannot missionize. One thing is clear from Nostra Aetate, the church is not allowed to evangelize to Jews. And in fact, there's a big debate in the church today over whether the Catholic Jewish relationship is distinct from the relationship that the Catholic church has with other religions. And the more progressive left wants to say, no, don't privilege the Catholic Jewish relationship that is racist or superior or chauvinist or whatever you want to say, but every interreligious relationship has to be equal. Um, but that is actually not the case according to Catholic doctrine because Catholics are permitted to evangelize to other faiths, except not Jews. And the doctrine uh, that we see in all these church documents highlight over and over the distinctive relationship between the church and the Jews specifically. And John Paul II absolutely insists that this relationship is distinct. Now, what I was shocked by <clears throat> as I joined Catholic Theological Union almost a decade ago is that in my very progressive left institution in which I am uh, the chair of Jewish studies, uh, John Paul II is considered a conservative, which I had no idea because as a youth, as a young adult, I thought he was a massive liberal because from the Jewish perspective, he had done all these things. He went to the Kotel, the Western Wall, we'll see uh, all the overtures he made with the, with the church, but actually doctrinally, he was quite conservative. And so, um, from the perspective of the progressive Catholic left, the fact that he um, prioritized the Catholic Jewish relationship was not in, in this view, a product of his liberalism, but a product of his traditionalism, which is very counterintuitive. And if you have any questions about that, uh, about that sort of mental somersault, we can discuss it in the Q and A. Uh, but th this is a debate, is the Catholic Jewish relationship distinct? You are going to see that the answer is yes in these documents. Um, even though many Catholics today uh, in progressive spaces would disagree. All right, so an effort will be made, second paragraph, to acquire a better understanding of whatever in the Old Testament, we would say Hebrew Bible, of course, retains its own perpetual value since it has not been canceled by the later interpretation of the New Testament. In other words, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible can stand on its own. Now, of course, for Catholics, they illuminate each other, right? So then the document goes on to say the New Testament brings out the full meaning of the old. Would Jews like that? No, Jews would not agree with that. But there's a, a sort of a tightrope here on the one hand, Jews can read the Hebrew Bible and get whatever they want out of it. On the other hand, for Catholics, the old illuminates the new. So is this what we would call supersessionist? Is this what we would call replacement theory? I think there's a real tightrope being walked over here and a little bit of intentional ambiguity. But if you go to uh, later on the document, I think you will see some Jules Isaac influence over here. So looking at the, wait a second. Ah, here we go. Okay. So uh, there are some guidelines here. 
I'm, I'm a little nervous about my PowerPoint wisdom. Okay. Um, so you see some guidelines here about how to teach about Jews. And these points overlap with the points of Seelisberg that were inspired by Julius Ox list. So better understanding of Judaism itself and its relationship to Christianity has been achieved, but the following facts deserve to be recalled. We worship the same God. Judaism in the time of, I've gotten so much flack for saying it, Christ and the apostles was a complex reality. Thank you, Ruth, for just, I, I see you. I, I hear you, even if you're on mute. Embracing many different trends, many spiritual, religious, social, and cultural values. Uh, you cannot pit the teachings of the Old Testament against the teachings of the New Testament. Jesus was born to a Jew. All these things that seem very obvious to us are absolutely not intuitive to the Catholic Church, especially not in the 1970s, when the vast majority of Catholics had never even heard of Nostra Aetate. And the sad reality is that even now, I would say the majority of Catholics have never read Nostra Aetate. Maybe they've heard of it, doesn't mean that they've read it. I'm going to take a breath to see uh, if there's a comment. Uh, Hebrew Bible is written in Hebrew, the Old Testament almost refers. No, that is, uh, I don't know, I don't know who put that in, but it's actually not correct. The Old Testament is not identical to the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament refers to the canon uh, mostly uh, in the Protestant tradition. So it's a different order. The Old Testament ends with the, um, the 12 minor prophets. It ends with Malachi, with Malachi. That means it goes straight into the Gospel of Matthew. Malachi ends with uh, the coming of Elijah. It's this eschatological end of days image. That goes straight into the coming of Jesus. So the order is different. The order is theological. In the Catholic tradition, it includes the Apocrypha. There's a lot to say. It is not a matter of language. And I'm happy to uh, discuss that further um, in the q and I'm so glad. I'm just looking at the other comments. I'm so glad, Alana, that you enjoyed Karma's book. She's a good writer. She's really, really uh, accessible. She's like fluent in four languages. It's amazing. Um, so when Catholics say the Old Testament, I um, always encourage my students to say the Old Testament, but it does not mean, you know, just a different translation. The order is different. And uh, in the Catholic tradition, the books are different as well. All right. So let's keep going, my friend, John Paul II. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I went onto YouTube. I've gone onto YouTube many times to learn how to pronounce his last name. And I, I'm just, I'm not even going to try uh, because I will get it wrong. But um, he's known to us as Pope John Paul II, who was Pope from 78 to 2005, a great friend to the Jewish people, but a conservative in doctrine. And so let's look at some of the documents that were produced during his time. But before we do that, Again, the most significant thing about Pope John Paul II was the public gestures. Uh, someone, a Catholic friend was just telling me like last week that he had traveled, like the miles he covered during his papacy was significantly more than any of the miles that had ever been traveled by a Pope. Now, of course, uh, he was only the second Pope, I think, to use a plane. I think the first time a Pope got in the plane was John Paul VI. Um, so, you know, it's easier to cover miles when you have like high-speed trains and planes. But he was on the go because he understood something very significant, which is that if you're writing the most brilliant theological doctrine, but you're in the ivory tower of Vatican City, you're not going to make a difference on the ground. And he showed up. He went all over Europe and elsewhere to uh, really stand with people and uh, no, none more so than the Jewish community. And uh, in 1975, uh, the Pope get, uh, goes to Auschwitz and he gives a very powerful but controversial speech. Now, on the one hand, during the speech, he takes the opportunity to prioritize um, the Catholic Jewish relationship, and he singles out the Jews who were killed at Auschwitz. But Auschwitz, I'm sure you know, for the Polish people is an incredibly complex place because First of all, Poles were also killed there who were not Jewish. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, uh, were killed there. And also, you might remember the controversy from 2018 um, regarding the supposed phrase that Obama used, Polish concentration camp. But in the Polish nationalist memory, uh, of course, the Poles were occupied by the Nazis, the Germans, and uh, the Soviet, uh, the Soviets. And so the... Um, the, the experience for most Poles that they were victims whose, uh, you know, citizens were killed at Auschwitz. So it's a very, very complicated thing. Now, we as Jews have many, many 
accounts of complicity. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't need to go on about that because we all, we all have our own stories from families, from friends, from neighbors um, of Polish complicity. Um, but what the, what the uh, Pope does that's very controversial is he mentions Catholics who were killed um, at Auschwitz, but also he mentions Edith Stein. Does anybody know who Edith Stein is? Yeah. So Edith Stein was a Jew who converted to Catholicism before the war. She becomes a Carmelite sister. She becomes a nun and she's killed in Auschwitz as a Jew. Now in the late nineties, I think in 98, she was canonized. This is a huge controversy because for the Jewish community it was a slap in the face. Uh, of course, the Jews would not have considered Edith Stein to be a saint, but in the Catholic Church, she was uh, a martyr. She's not only a saint, but she's a martyr because she was killed. Um, and so he mentions her and he says, I'm thinking of the death in the gas chamber of the concentration camp of the Carmelite sister, Benedicta of the Cross, whose name in the world was Edith Stein. She, but then he mentions she was a descendant of a Jewish family. And so he's trying to, to build bridges here the Jewish community might not have felt that that was, you know, the thing to say, um, but um, let's see. But then he singles out, he, he's looking at inscriptions at the site and he says, and I, I pause especially before the inscription in Hebrew, this inscription awakens the memory of the people whose sons and daughters were intended for total extermination. So he recognizes that above all who were killed at Auschwitz, it was the Jews who were targeted. And he said, the people, the Jews draw their origin from Abraham, our father in faith. And so he's bringing the Catholic church into friendship and brotherhood with the Jewish people. It is not permissible for anyone to pass by this inscription with indifference. So yes, he mentions Edith Stein, but ultimately he also does single out the uh, martyr jump. Well, I'm not going to say martyr jump, but the, the execution of one point, uh, I think it's like 1.2 million Jews at Auschwitz who were murdered. Okay, yeah, I'm going a little faster than I'd like to go because we have like 28 slides left. I'm not going to do them all. Um, and he also goes to, goes to mines. He goes to Jewish communities throughout Europe and at these communities, especially communities who have very painful, quite tragic um, uh, histories of being oppressed by the church all the way back uh, to the medieval period. Uh, he goes to these communities and he insists on the uh, friendship between Jews and Christians. And again, this is very radical that in, in 1980, he's going to all these places uh, to, to um, you know, places where there's a lot of lot of memory of trauma and he's putting himself I think I think he's making himself vulnerable to these Jewish communities and saying we're different we want to reconcile and he says in this speech uh, to the Jews of Mainz if Christians must consider themselves brothers of all men and behave accordingly this holy obligation is all the more binding when they find themselves before the Jewish people and the point here again is that he never hesitated to make it very explicit that he considered the Catholic Jewish relationship to be distinct and special and today, unfortunately, that's a little bit of a controversial idea. But the reason why it's special for, for uh, John Paul II is not only because uh, Jews and Catholics share scriptures and history and uh, you know common memory, but also because he did recognize the extent to which the church was responsible for anti-Jewish violence and death. Okay, so this is still the mind speech. And he says the concrete brotherly relations between Jews and Catholics in Germany assume a quite particular value against the grim background of the persecution and the attempted extermination of Jews in this country. Um, okay, so he gives this speech. I'm gonna just like up my pace a little bit, but again, you can always uh, reach out to me and I'll send this to you. Um, hold on one second. Uh, it is not just a question of correcting a false religious view I'm going to skip a line, but above all, the dialogue. He doesn't just want to fix things within the church, right, and tell his compatriots in the church, you have to stop talking about Jews like they're guilty of deicide, of God murder, but we have to actually go to the streets, go into these communities, go into these synagogues and these spaces, and he adds Islam too here, but he does not pay attention to Islam the way that he pays attention to Jews, uh, that has been criticized as well, uh, but he says you have to go and cultivate dialogue. All right, I'm going to move on from the speech. Now, what's interesting about it, oh, and he also does say one thing about the land of Israel. Remember, this is in 1980. So this is, you know, the state of Israel is new, it's controversial. Um, 
we're going to see that, well, at this point, the Vatican had not yet opened up diplomatic relations with the state of Israel. That doesn't happen until 1993, but it does happen because of John Paul II. Um, but he says, I look to you to the destiny and the role of your people among the uh, peoples. I pray for you with the fullness of shalom for all your brothers and nationality and faith, and also for the land to which Jews look with particular veneration. And then he makes reference to Paul VI's visit uh, to the Holy Land that had taken place at, uh, about 15 years earlier. Okay. But now what's so interesting, okay, so he, he's giving these speeches. He's going all over Europe, going all over the world, and going to these spaces, and people are just blown away by him, the things that he says, um, and he's advocating for the unique, special uh, relationship between Catholics and Jews, and the need for reconciliation, and taking responsibility for anti-Jewish um, hatred that the church fostered, and yet, there are church documents being produced that are telling a very different story. I think this is what Ben Yochanan does so well. And so you have a document in 1984 called the Notes on the Correct Way to Present Jews and Judaism, because it's not clear what exactly to do with Nostra Aetate, and it's not trickling down, as they say, into the pews uh, from dioceses all over the world to parishes, to churches, to Catholic schools. The trickle down, by the way, still hasn't taken place. Uh, it's slow, it's inconsistent, but this document from the Jewish perspective did not help things. It was actually quite unsatisfying, and part of that is because it does not clarify the particular status of the Jewish people that Nostra Aetate was meant to illuminate. So it says on the one hand, and again, it's a long document, you could find it online. It says the Exodus represents an experience of salvation and liberation that is not complete in itself. What's the implication for the Christian side? That it has to be, it, it only comes to its completion with the liberation that comes with the coming of Christ. So the um, salvation and liberation are already accomplished in Christ. And that means that there's sort of transcendent, atemporal existence to Christ and gradually realized by the sacraments in the church. In other words, you can't fully understand the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible, unless you understand that all the movement that's happening in the, in the Old Testament is moving towards the New Testament. And next paragraph, furthermore, in underlining the eschatological, that means the end of days, dimension of Christianity will reach a greater awareness that the people of God of the old and new are tending towards a like end in the future. That puts Jews on the Christian stage. In other words, Jews may not realize it, but they are part of a Christian story. Parentheses, they better get on board because whether they like it or not, they're going to be part of this story. And that story is the coming or return of the Messiah. And of course, here the Messiah is Christ. Um, and so this is, you know, highly unsatisfactory and also not necessarily appropriate in the context of a document regarding how to talk about Jews, right? So like if this, I think context is very, very important with all these things. If this were in a different document, an internal document meant for how Catholics should be reading the Old Testament, okay, I don't think that Jews would have freaked out about it. But if it's in a document about Jews, it's supersessionist. You understand? I mean, context is very significant here. Um, okay. And so Jews indeed were quite angry. <laughs> and Alan Middleman and Judy Banky, who are still very active in Catholic Jewish relations. I just saw Judy a couple weeks ago um, in Philadelphia at a conference uh, for Jewish Christian relations. And she was just honored by the Tenenbaum Center for she, she, her amazing, illustrious career. Uh, in working, uh, groundbreaking uh, work in Jewish Catholic relations. But anyway, so they write this article, they're very, very upset. And some of their language is not very PC, but we're just going to move past it. And they say, one of the frustrations in evaluating this document lies in its schizoid nature. I don't know that that word would be used today, but okay. From a Jewish perspective, progressive affirmations in one section are undercut by regressive formulation in another section. And so there's contradictory theological views papered all over uh, by expressions of noble intention. And they're like, maybe there were just too many people inv involved in writing this document. Speculation as to how the notes were formulated is probably fruitless, but it appears to be a tug of war between two incompatible mindsets towards Jews. You see a little bit of that in Nostra Aetate. Like you can tell that there's like true Jerusalem did not realize the time of its visit visitation, right? True, the Jews want to kill Jesus, but God holds the Jews most dear, right? Like this, a tug of war, but in the notes, the tug of war is amplified. It's not rectified. <laughs> um, and so what's most disappointing about the notes is their failure to convey to Catholic the essential traits by which the Jews define themselves. In other words, and I think this is very, very um, important, 
Um, the, the most central prerequisite towards successful dialogue is self-definition and the respect of self-definition. In other words, if you're not going to allow the other side in dialogue to say, this is who I am, this is how I define myself, you can't really have substantive dialogue. And the Jews involved in dialogue read this document and felt misunderstood. You are not properly characterizing Judaism uh, in, in a respectful and accurate way. And you are taking our central uh, scriptures and modes of identity and you're turning them into Christian symbols. It's non-starter, it's unacceptable. At the same time, you keep having these public incidents that, well, yes, I think incidents is the right word to use, wherein John Paul II ultimately shows himself to be a great friend of the Jewish people. And some of you might be familiar with a very famous and controversial um, situation at Auschwitz uh, regarding the cross. Okay, so this is, I, I'm not gonna give you all the, the details, but uh, the main things that I wanna just note, just this little timeline, in 1984, a Carmelite convent is established at the site of Auschwitz. I'm not sure, but I assume it's because Edith Stein was a Carmelite nun and the Carmelite community maybe felt very connected to her. And this was a site of, of course, again, not just the martyrdom of Edith Stein, but the martyrdom of many, many uh, Catholics in Poland. Now there's an uproar among the Jewish community, the global Jewish community, who view um, Auschwitz as sort of the, um, you know, the largest grave site of Jewish blood in Jewish history. That's what it is. And not to uh, dismiss the many, many other people who were killed there, but still it was regarded as almost a sacred site to the Jewish community. And this was an insult um, to have this convent, this, nu this nunnery, this convent at the site. And so there's this big meeting in 1987 where it's agreed upon that the Carmelite nuns had two years to move. And then if you look at the sources between 1987 and 1989, not much happens, presumably because the Jews are sort of waiting for the convent to close, but then they don't, they don't leave. Now what happens after 1989 is just a massive, mess for four years on both sides, where you have locals in Auschwitz who are uh, victim, portraying themselves as victims to Jewish bullies and saying, how dare these Jews turn the site into something just about them? It's also about us. You could a little bit sympathize with that, um, but maybe not so much. Um, and then you have the Jews uh, who are going to the site of Auschwitz, including Avi Weiss, who famously scaled, there's a fence that was separating the sort of public town from the site and he, and he scaled it and he um, just made a public scene. And I, I saw some sources where there was a physical, again, well, I wasn't there, there's no video of this, but apparently there was a, a physical altercation, um, literally a fight a physical altercation between um, Avi and a few, uh, R Rabbi Weiss and a few of his uh, Jewish colleagues and the Catholics who want to defend the site. Um, and so this is going on for years. And you should know that even the late 90s, but throughout the late, throughout the 90s, Catholics are adding crosses to the site. So this original cross, I'm pointing, but you can't see my hand, the huge cross is 26 feet high. That cross goes back to 1979. When jo John Paul II visited Auschwitz, that cross was established and the Jewish community did not immediately go into an uproar, particularly because of who John Paul II was and the speech that he gave and his efforts to cross, you know, to go into the Jewish community and, and articulate the uh, responsibility that the church had for anti-Semitism. But the, the cross stayed and it sort of like drew the ire of the Jewish community when in 1984, the convent was established and then people just start adding crosses and adding crosses. And as late as 1998, there were 303 crosses at the site and then many were removed. So this like ebbs and flows. And even today, there's the crosses there. Oh, that's really interesting, Jessica. And I'm not gonna talk about whether I say Christ or not. This is something that I've discussed many times in my teaching and we can discuss it during Q&A. When I'm speaking about the Christian perspective, it is the word that I use. I'm, I'm an educator at Catholic Theological Union. When I'm talking about the Jewish perspective, I do not use the word. No, I do not think that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, Jessica, that's very, very uh, helpful. Thank you for um, letting me know that, I had no idea. Okay, so anyway, but the point here, is that there's a huge media controversy. And again, 
they're, they're, they're um, priests, they're cardinals who are publicly telling their parishes, don't give in to the Jewish bullies. And so you have Cardinal Glemp who says to the Jews, don't talk to us from this position of a superior nation. Don't dictate terms like you're, you're the Jewish bullies. Of course, this feeds into this old stereotype of Jewish power. Now in this situation, the Jews had no power, but uh, don't use this power to spread your anti-Polonism. Uh, but finally, in 1993, John Paul II says, you know what, I'm getting involved in this, in this situation, you're out of here, and then they go. Nevertheless, up until this day, it is a site where Catholics go, and they put crosses, they, the crosses come and go, uh, but uh, and the big one seems to be permanent, and I think that the Jewish community has pretty much given up uh, any effort to sort of remove that cross, and again, because of its association with John Paul II, uh, who is so respected as a friend in the Jewish community that I don't think that cross is going to go anywhere anytime soon. There's also um, a small church at the site that more recently has been um, has been established. So controversial. Okay, and there it is more recently. I think this was taken two years ago. So you see it's actually quite lovely. I mean, I'm not calling the cross lovely. Please don't put something in the chat about that. But the site, you know, this is like a very serene, I could see from the perspective of the, of the nuns that um, this would be like a place where they would want to meditate. I don't know, but also massive gravesite of millions of people. Okay. All right. Now this, okay. So I don't know why I put this um, without explanation. <laughs> I think that I'm missing a, I'm missing a slide, but <clears throat> this is an image in very late 1993 where uh, the Catholic Church, again, through the blessing and the initiative of John Paul II, finally opens up a formal relations with the Holy See. Does any, anyone have any questions? Because I see there's like a little bit of confusion, <laughs> uh, but this is them signing the document. I'm sorry for not being clear. Um, what, when, when you say Holy See, yeah. who is that? So I thought that was the Pope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be the Pope. Right. Oh. So the Vatican opens up formal relations, diplomatic relations with the state of Israel in 1993. And one of the most famous images of his legacy is going to be seven years later when he visits Israel. Hopefully that's that's over here. But before I get to um, to his visit in 2000, then we have to get to Benedict. So uh, there's a lot left to do. I want to point you to a remarkable thing that happened that most people, most Jews, at least that I know, do not know about. Um, and again, I'm trying to draw a distinction between church doctrine. If you read the, these written statements, you might be disappointed and frustrated and feel like the church hasn't gotten anywhere, and public gestures. Now, we know that France, under occupation, sent hundreds of thousands of Jews to uh, concentration camps to their deaths, right? I mean, that's the story of Julie Zeph. Yeah. Um, in 1997, the bishops of France took public responsibility for their role in betraying the Jews. Now, they might not have directly put the Jews on the trains, but they looked the other way. And this statement is one of the most, I think, in all the history of Catholic Jewish reconciliation from 1965 to 2022, this statement is one of the clearest articulations of unequivocal Catholic responsibility. I do not think you'll see this in doctrine. You're not going to see in a statement like, well, we're, we're going to look at a statement called We Remember, uh, which was published the next year. Again, that Jews were not happy with. It was about the Holocaust. But this speech that was given in a public park at a site where Jews were taken away to their deaths in 1997 makes it very clear. Today, we confess that this silence that we had, knowing what was happening to the Jews, was a fault. We recognize that the church in France failed in its mission to educate people's consciences. In other words, in other words the controversy over whether the theological anti-Judaism that you find in church teachings had a direct correlation with Nazi um, aspirations to exterminate the Jews. And of course, the Nazis were not you know, observing Christians. But here it makes it very clear. Yes, the Catholic Church was responsible for feeding into that hatred. We have the responsibility for not having come to the aid when protests and protection were possible. And again, at this early stage, the role of Pius, the role of the Pope during the Holocaust is extraordinarily 
controversial with most Catholics saying he probably didn't know. That's why he didn't get involved. Just recently, the scholar David Kurtzer at Brown University put out a new book based on the recently opened archives of that Pope. And I encourage you to read it. I don't remember the name of it, but it came out like in the last year. The archives were opened a couple of years ago. David Kurtzer uh, poured through them. His conclusion is that the Pope absolutely was aware of what was going on. But in 1997, this was not like an okay thing to say. Uh, so they take personal responsibility for it. They're not talking about what's happening uh, with the Pope. But the, this failure of the Church of France and its responsibility towards the Jewish people are part of its history. We confess this fault. We implore God's forgiveness. We ask the Jewish people to hear these words of repentance. I can't read this without getting chills. This is the most unequivocal statement of apology that I think exists uh, in this era. So isn't it strange that just a year after we have this massive event, look at the picture, hundreds if not thousands of people gathered here to speech. We have a document produced called We Remember less than a year later. That's a total and utter disappointment. <laughs> and again, remember it's under Pope John Paul II. So who is he? Who is he? We don't know. Does he like us or not? But you know, these documents are not written by the Pope. Uh, in, in most cases, they're written by uh, um, council of people of, of, of archbishops cardinals from all over the world hold on please so it's a very very long document about the role of the church in the holocaust and again it does what the notes of 1984 do it sort of gives and takes in the same in the same sentence so it may be asked whether the nazi persecution of the jews was not made easier by anti-jewish prejudices embedded in christian minds so were the was the Christian church responsible for what the Nazis did to the Jews? Well, any response to this question has to take into account. We're dealing with the history of people's attitudes and way of thinking subject to multiple influences. This reminds me of like, you know, Ben Stein in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like the teacher who drones on and on and everyone starts like looking out the window because the words aren't like really meaningful. Moreover, many people who were altogether unaware of the final solution that was being put into effect against the whole people, others were afraid for themselves. Some took advantage of the situation. Still others were moved by envy, right? Not anti-Jewish hatred, just envy. Uh, a response would need to be given case by case, right? So we can't say that like the church at the top was responsible for the extermination of 6 million Jews, but it would have to be taken case by case. So for Jews, this was very unsatisfactory. And even more so when you look at the next page. Okay, so in the lands where the Nazis undertook mass deportation, uh, the brutality which surrounded these forced movements of helpless people should have led to suspect people, I'm sorry, of helpless people should have led to suspect the worst, right? They should have known what was going on. Did Christians give every possible assistance to those being persecuted? Many did, but others did not. Okay, this is like very inefficient. Uh, this is very insufficient from the perspective of the Jews. Many did, but others did not. Those who did help save Jewish lives as much as was in their power, even to the point of placing their own lives in danger must not be forgotten. Um, but you know, some people maybe it's it's like what a politician said a few years ago. Some people did some things. Like yeah, it's not um, it's not really satisfying. You have to take it on a case by case basis, is what the document said. This is truly, in my opinion, the opposite of what you see in the speech at Drancy in, in France. I don't know of scholarship that has looked at these documents side by side, but I bet that it's out there because the contrast is so stark. But then, oh no, <laughs> this is my, my terrible PowerPointing I, that I don't even have it in the right color. Um, okay, so that's really sad. I need to have the text. Okay, it's kind of there. Um, let me see if I could pull it up in my other computer over here. But um, you know, you have these documents and then again, you have these unbelievable gestures that have never taken place on the part of the church. And most famously, you have uh, John Paul II going to the Western Wall in 2000. I have it over here, so I'm just gonna say, and, and putting a prayer into the wall. And the prayer was shared publicly. God of our fathers, you chose Abraham and his descendants to bring your name to the nations. We are deeply saddened by the behavior of those who in the course of history have caused these children of yours to suffer and ask for your forgiveness. Again, taking responsibility and asking God for forgiveness. 
we wish to commit ourselves to genuine brotherhood with the people of the covenant. This is a stunning statement that ends up becoming a public document. Again, you can find it on the Vatican website, but keep thinking about this discrepancy between these official documents and what Pope John Paul II and some of his supporters are saying in the streets, in the public square. Which brings us to Benedict. <laughs> Benedict does not enjoy the same reputation of our best friend, Pope John Paul II. And part of this is that he was a little bit more of an ivory tower figure. In other words, he doesn't travel. Everyone has to watch the two popes. It's not about John Paul II at all, but it's about Benedict and Francis. Gotta watch it. Benedict does not have the same drive or maybe energy or desire to be going into these sites, going to these communities, traveling from place to place, shaking hands, kissing babies. It's just not his personality. He's a very serious theologian. Those who say he's a Nazi, I don't wanna hear it. That's not, we don't have, yes, he was in Hitler Youth, but I, I have some right-wing relatives who say, oh, the Nazi, we don't need to do that. But he was a conservative thinker, not so far as Ben Yochanan shows, not so far from John Paul II doctrinally, but we don't have the same gestures to counterbalance what we find in his writings. And so most notoriously, he's responsible, this is produced before his papacy in around 2000, but he's responsible for a document called Dominus Jesus. Now, you can all read this very long document on your own time. I'm not going to go into it here, but the most important thing you need to know about Dominus Jesus is that it reasserts the old position of the church that, I'm going to say it, so mute me if you need to, there is no salvation outside of Christ. There is no salvation outside of Christ. So what this does is it creates a furor among those more progressive left church leaders who are reading Nostra Aetate in such a way as to interpret that you can be saved, especially if you're Jewish, outside of the covenantal community of Christianity. And then comes along this document, which seems to set everything back. But the document is very complicated. And again, like the notes of 1984, and like we remember of 1998, there is a give and take, a push and pull, where on the one hand, the Jews are most dear to God, but on the other hand, there's no salvation outside of Christ. Now, the way that Catholic theologians have been solving this is through the category of mystery. In other words, our human brains aren't, do not have the capacity because our limited minds see that as a contradiction because we're limited, but in the transcendental, in the transcendent knowledge of God that lies beyond space, these two facts are not contradictory. For humanity, it's a mystery. <sighs> well, let's just see a little bit about, uh, so he's responsible for this document. He's not the only one who writes it, but he's connected with this document. And uh, famously, the Dominus Jesus says, it's held certain that, uh, it is held that certain truths have been superseded. For example, the definitive and complete character of the revelation of Jesus, the nature of Christian faith, as compared with that of other, of belief in other religions, the inspired nature of the books of sacred scripture, et cetera, et cetera. All of this is, uh, can only be properly understood through the universal salvific mediation of the church. Um, so all human salvation goes through the church. You know, and, and then he leaves open a door for evangelization, for missionizing. And this is where it gets really tricky because she believes in God's universal plan of salvation. The church must be missionary. Now, what does it mean to be missionary? Does it mean some would say everything's ambiguous, right? Does it mean to stand as a witness towards Christianity, right? Not actively knocking on doors on a Sunday morning and yelling at Jews to convert, but just sort of modeling Christian faith, or does it mean actively pursuing? Uh, Jewish conversion, probably the former and not the latter. But nevertheless, for Benedict or for this document, interreligious dialogue is part of the evangelizing mission. In other words, this is exactly what Rav Soloveitchik warned about, we're going to see next week, um, that you cannot exorcise, I use that word ironically and humorously, you cannot exorcise the church's desire to evangelize towards all the church, because, towards all people, because of this fact there's no salvation outside the church. 
So you can understand why this would have been very controversial. But again, but again, gestures don't always align with doctrine. And so you have Benedict reading a book by a very famous scholar, Jacob Neusner, who wrote over 700 books. Some of them are just translations of rabbinic literature, but still. And he reads We Jews and, and Jesus in the early 2000s. And Benedict is blown away by this book. And he says, I have to meet this person. I have to meet Jacob Neusner. And they strike up a friendship. <laughs> and so again, you know, this friendship, which Ben Yochanan says could only have happened because in the book, Neusner insists on clear boundaries between Judaism and Christianity. But again, the friendship is not entirely what you would expect of somebody who was involved in producing Dominus Jesus. Oh my, hold on one second. I think I just went backwards because I don't know what to do here. All right, now he also visits Auschwitz and very famously did not give a speech. He sat in silence, which many Jews found extremely moving. I, I don't know if he gave a speech like near the site, but I know that people were expecting a, a speech. And then at one point he just sat in silence and he asked, uh, to be left alone and they gave him space and he looked to be in meditation and prayer and this was considered to be very 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 moving um so again you'll see especially from the movie the two popes he's not we're not talking about like you know the devil incarnate here he's a complicated figure benedict um and yet the liturgy is the real sticking point with his legacy so if you know anything about his legacy you know that he did a lot of work as a traditionalist to restore the old Latin mass, the old Latin liturgy to the churches that were, um, that had been said up until the second Vatican council. And one of the most controversial pieces to the liturgy is the Good Friday liturgy up until 59. So even before Nostratate was produced up until 59. And then it was jo John, it was um, the 23rd. What was John Paul? John the 20, I don't remember uh, the name of the Pope, but in 1959, the Pope right before John Paul VI um, removed this from the liturgy, but the old, this is the pre-1959 version, but this is what it used to say, let us pray for the faithless Jews, that almighty God may remove the veil from their hearts so that they may too acknowledge Jesus our Lord. And so even before Nosheratate, there was enough backlash about this statement that it was removed. Um, but Benedict restored this version, not exactly this version, but restored um, what had replaced this. So uh, but there are many versions that are being introduced, but by 1970, this was a very common one. Let us pray for the Jewish people. The first to hear the word of God, this is much nicer, right? That they might continue to grow in the love of his name and faithfulness to his covenant. So you don't pray for the perfidious Jews. And by the way, Good Friday in medieval Europe was the most dangerous day of the year for Jews because the Christians would be whipped into a fury after they would go to mass and they would hear anti-Semitic homilies. And then they would go out um, of their churches and look for Jews to attack. Good Friday was a very, very dangerous and terrifying day. So uh, the liturgy has changed. In 1970, this is uh, one of the dominant versions uh, that are available to Catholics. Listen to your church as you pray that the people you first made your your own, I think it should be on your own, may arrive at the fullness of redemption. So there still is a little bit of like, well, let's pray that the Jews find Jesus. But at the same time, uh, you know, we're not praying for the perfidious Jews. It's very toned down. Now, Benedict wanted to uh, go back to uh, some form of the original version. And so he introduced in 2008, the following, let us pray for the Jews that God our Lord uh, should illuminate their hearts that they will recognize Jesus. So it's, it's much more explicit than the 1970 version. All powerful and eternal God, you who wish that all men be saved and come to the recognition of truth, graciously grant that when the fullness of peoples enters your church, uh, all of Israel will be saved. Um, and so again, you have a situation where he, uh, he is highly traditionalist um, and wants to preserve the, uh, the notion that all salvation has to come through, through Christ. Watch the two popes. But now um, I just want to, I don't know, first of all, Kayla, if we have time for that clip that I suggested, but I do also just want to point out, has anyone seen this image? Anyone know what this image is? Do you remember last week I showed you Synagoga and Ecclesia and Notre Dame? Uh-oh, why am I so bad at PowerPoint? Okay, so remember how so I showed you all these images from medieval and high Renaissance churches where the Jews are presented either as the Yudensau, right? Like suckling from the teat of pigs 
or in the case of synagogue and ecclesia, you have these two women, one is downtrodden and blinded and dejected, and one is sort of elegant and looking up, looking up in the sky and elevated and proud. Um, this image is at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. It was commissioned to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Nostratate. It was installed in 2015. Pope Francis and many dignitaries were there. And it's meant to undermine the uh, stereotype of synagogue as having the broken covenant and ecclesia, the church as having the only living covenant. And here you see the stunning image of synagogue holding her Torah, looking towards a little bit towards ecclesia, ecclesia looking at the Torah, but holding her New Testament. See how they're sort of equal in stature, facing each other, not facing away, uh, both equally, you know, lovely, elegant, beautiful. And again, I bring this to your attention because gestures, public statements, going out into the public square, these are so significant. These symbols are so significant, maybe even more significant than these written texts that are being produced as formal uh, teachings or doctrines. But at the same time, they're not really reaching what we call the people in the pews. But think about how many thousands of people walk past this image every day at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. And so again, the dissonance between the public gestures and the written documents, it has not been resolved. We don't have a consistent policy today from the church. We see a lot of inconsistency, but we do see movement towards reconciliation. Uh, so I'm gonna stop my share. And I'm willing to try and um, make an attempt at showing the clip from two popes. Let's see if Netflix, my only question is will Netflix, uh, block that. So are people seeing? Oh, but this isn't, do you have it when he's going to the garden? Yes. Okay. I'm okay. going to go, you know what? I'm going to go stop the share and cue things up and give people. And in the meantime, if people have questions, I think. No, yeah. I don't, ask I don't some questions to. and then we'll see. I also might have the uh, password. I asked my husband to send it to me. Uh, let's see. Yep. The timing is 17 minutes. It's around 17, minute 17, where they walk into the garden. And for anyone who has to sign off, I absolutely understand we're all busy, but it's just a phenomenal scene. Um, and, you know, if you don't get to it today, we can, you know, I'll, I'll sign the movie as homework we can discuss next week. Any can, questions? can I ask a question? Mm, yes, can I ask please. a question? Uh, apologies that my video is off. I am uh, with my baby son right now. Um, so I, I am, curious uh to hear your thoughts on the old testament versus hebrew bible topic yeah. and this may be beyond your scope so please you know feel free to say so but i think in recent years there's been sort of a move in um like progressive christian spaces to not use the term old testament because it's seen as supersessionist right and i'm hearing you say kind of the opposite to like understand the theology behind the term Old Testament and to be intentional. Can you speak a bit about how you navigate that with your students? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I always, this is a hugely important topic because so many of my students are afraid to offend me. And so very often they go out of their way when they talk about their scriptures to say Hebrew Bible. And I often say, I'm going to say Hebrew Bible or Tanakh. And I'm asking for you to respect. And when I talk about my scriptures, I'm going to say Hebrew Bible or Tanakh. But when you're talking about your scriptures, I will never be offended if you say the Old Testament because it doesn't mean the same thing, especially in the Catholic church when you have this entire body known as the Apocrypha that's canonized, that is not in the scriptural tradition of the Jewish people. But even more so, the ordering of the books of the canon is a theological statement. And so when I talk about Old Testament, that's a technical phrase that I'm using to refer to the particular order of books that is used in the Catholic tradition, that ends, before you get to the Apocrypha, with Malachi. And the order for the Ketuvim section, for the writing section in the Jewish tradition, is purely chronological. Those are our late post-exilic texts that bring us into the Second Temple period. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I, I think it's hard for me to say no one should get offended there are many things that are offensive, but a Christian saying the Old Testament, in my opinion, should not be one of them. That is how they refer to their scriptures because yes, 
old implies that there's a new. And for the, the Christian tradition, there is both an old and a new. That fact does not offend me. I don't think Jews should find it offensive. What is offensive is when a Christian reads passages in their Old Testament in a way that elides or eclipses the contextual meaning of the passage in question that gives its significance for Jewish tradition. In other words, I don't think Old Testament in itself is supersessionist, but I think that it can often slide into a reading of Old Testament or Hebrew Bible passages that think that or that frame contextualize these texts through a historical progress that ends with the coming of Jesus. That we can take issue with. The phrase Old Testament to me should not be a point of contention. That's my opinion. Um, but again, you might say, well, that's just, you know, that's just a technicality. Like you're, you're being so technical. What's the difference? Just have them say Hebrew Bible, but it's not their Hebrew Bible. Anyway, so that's my little speech. Um, but, um, if you have any questions, I'm happy to talk further. Kayla, do you want to try to share and then anyone can stay if they want to stay for seven minutes? Oh, you're on mute. I'm going to try and share. And also okay. this way, if, you know, the fair use, you know, gobl you know, oh. if the uh, fair, if the uh, copyright bots come a calling, this is at the end. So it's a easy spot to, you know, trim. Oh, why don't you stop recording then? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm just gonna, well, for everyone who's who's leaving, thank you for thank you for your time. Thank you for this morning. We will have one more class with Dr. Simkovich um, in the series next week, and recordings will be posted publicly. All right. Put the Jewish sources next week. Finally. Yes. Finally. All right. Just gonna stop the recording.